0: Hi everyone. This is Donald Robertson. Today I'm going to read some excerpts from my latest book, which is a biography. It's part of Yale University Press's Ancient Lives series, and it's called Marcus Aurelius: The Stoic Emperor. It's now available for order from Amazon and all other bookstores. It's in hardback, ebook, and soon it's going to be available in audiobook format because I just finished doing the audio recordings in a a nearby studio. But today I wanted to read a little bit from the beginning of each chapter. So I'm going to start with the prologue, which is titled Truth in the Meditations. Marcus Aurelius did not have a heart of stone. When the news was brought to him that one of his most beloved tutors had died, The young Caesar was distraught, and tears poured down his cheeks. He may perhaps have started to beat his chest and tear his clothes in grief. Palace servants, afraid his reputation would be harmed by such a public display of raw emotion, rushed to his side, trying to restrain him. His adoptive father, the Emperor Antoninus Pius, a thoughtful and gentle man, gestured for them to step aside. He whispered, Let him be only a man for once, for neither philosophy nor empire takes away natural feeling. Now I'm going to read from chapter one, which is titled The Mother of Caesar. Piety and kindness writes his frail hand, listing qualities that author learned from his mother, and abstinence not only from evil deeds but even from evil thoughts. Marcus Aurelius is in his fifties. It is late at night and the frigid winter air of Aquincum, modern-day Budapest, has brought on his familiar hacking cough. As usual, he has difficulty sleeping. Outside the Praetorium, his headquarters at the centre of the legionary fortress, everything is deceptively silent. The Praetorians, his personal regiment, are camped in nearby barracks. The whole empire has been devastated by a horrific pandemic which would eventually be named the Antonine Plague after Marcus Aurelius Antoninus's imperial dynasty. The First Marcomannic War still rages along the Danube frontier. The army is exhausted from fighting one battle after another against the enemy tribes the Quadi and Yazigis, on the other side of the river. In the midst of all these troubles the emperor is writing his personal notes on the application of Stoic philosophy. He pauses momentarily to gaze upon a wood-panel portrait of Lucilla, his mother. Slowly turning over the lesson that he learned from her half a century earlier, he must have asked himself, how can a man learn to abstain even from the very thought of doing wrong? Chapter 2. Verisimus the Philosopher After the formal nine days of mourning for her husband were over, Marcus's mother sat by her two young children and explained that their toys were to be packed away by the servants. They were leaving their familiar beloved home on Rome's Celian Hill to move into the nearby villa of Marcus's paternal grandfather, who also bore the name Marcus Annius Verus. When his father died, as the Augustan history puts it, young Marcus was adopted and reared by his father's father. At first the young noble felt some anxiety at the prospect of adjusting to a new way of life. He would later compare the transition to a sort of death. He nevertheless grew to think of his grandfather as another good man, much like his father. Chapter 3. The Greek Training One morning Marcus Aurelius' favourite tutor took him to join a group of older boys, as they crammed into a busy school hall, writing tablets dangling from their necks. Marcus was the only one still wearing the golden bulla, or protective amulet, that marked him as a child. He must have been thrilled to witness something normally reserved for those who had donned the toga virilis and legally achieved manhood. The boys were crowded around a foreign lecturer, who was dressed in a simple grey shawl, with long white hair and a well-kempt beard that added to his sage-like appearance. He spoke eloquently in Greek, the language of philosophy, often stopping to answer questions from excited students. Originally from Asia Minor, Apollonius of Chalcedon had recently been teaching Stoicism in Athens, but now he was the talk of Rome. Chapter 4 Hadrian's Vendettas In 123 during his first tour of the empire, Hadrian visited the city of Claudiopolis in the Roman province of Bithynia, modern-day northwest Turkey. It was probably on this trip that a 12-year-old local boy named Antinous caught the emperor's eye. A few years later, Hadrian returned to Rome with him around the time the emperor gave Marcus the nickname Verusimus, Because of his closeness to the emperor, The four or five-year-old Marcus must have grown increasingly aware of this older boy, known for his exceptional beauty and charisma, who was rapidly becoming a prominent member of the imperial retinue. As both youths were favourites of Hadrian, they certainly knew of and probably even rubbed shoulders with one another. Yet although Antinous was one of the most famed individuals of the era, Marcus makes no mention of him whatsoever, perhaps pointedly, Around 128, Hadrian left for a second time, touring Greece, Asia Minor and North Africa, with Antinous accompanying him. Marcus remained in Rome with his family. Chapter 5. The Death of Hadrian On January 23rd, 138, the day before Hadrian's 62nd birthday, a madman forced his way into the Senate building, raving incoherently about death. It took everyone by surprise, most of all Hadrian, who was left profoundly disturbed by the incident. The notoriously superstitious emperor took it to be a portent of his own imminent demise. A day later, while performing a religious rite, the part of his ceremonial toga covering his head fell back, leaving his greying scalp bare. This was another bad omen. The gods were exposing his vulnerability for all to see. Then, a signet ring bearing his image dropped from his emaciated finger. It was as though the ageing emperor was falling to pieces in public view. Chapter 6 Disciple of Antoninus Following Hadrian's death in July 138, Marcus's belongings were once more packed onto wagons. The young noble was moving home yet again and embarking on a new life as the adopted son of the incumbent emperor. Eventually, even his name would be changed from Marcus Annius Verus to Marcus Aelius Aurelius Verus Caesar, affirming the continuity of the dynasties by combining his own family name with those of Hadrian and Antoninus, the names Verus, Aelius and Aurelius, respectively. Chapter 7 Disciple of Rusticus Once his formal studies in philosophy were underway, Marcus Aurelius began hearing more about a great Stoic philosopher who had recently died at Nicopolis in Greece toward the end of Hadrian's rule. Banished by the Emperor Domitian during a political purge four decades earlier, this former slave attracted many students, although he never committed anything to writing. In the years following his demise, his profound wisdom and uniquely powerful voice, seem to have been lost forever. Chapter 8 The Two Emperors Do not expect the ideal republic of the philosophers to happen overnight, Marcus told himself, but be content if even small steps go well and consider that to be no small matter. Gnaeus Claudius Severus Arabianus was a Roman statesman and another of Marcus Aurelius's philosophy tutors. The two men called each other brother, and Severus's son would eventually marry one of Marcus's daughters. Severus, an Aristotelian, tutored Marcus in political philosophy. He taught him about several philosophers associated with Roman Republican values and opposition to political tyranny, including the Stoic Cato the Younger, who opposed Julius Caesar, Brutus, one of Caesar's lead assassins, and Thrasea, a Stoic senator, who was executed for his opposition to Emperor Nero. Chapter 9. The Parthian Invasion In the hours preceding his death, Emperor Antoninus, delirious with fever, temporarily lost his characteristic equanimity. He became agitated, and his ravings seemed to take on a prophetic quality as he spoke out angrily against certain kings. the IV of the Arsacid dynasty King of Parthia, was undoubtedly one of the names on the dying emperor's lips. Chapter 10. The War of Lucius Verus Lucius Verus embraced his co-emperor as they kissed each other goodbye. Although Lucius was his adoptive brother, he seemed more like a son to Marcus. Since he and Lucius were not alone, he leaned in close to whisper his advice. When you have a banquet before you, remember to tell yourself that it is just a dead pig, a dead bird, and that the finest Falernian wine is merely grape juice and nothing more. By these and other means, you must learn to moderate your desires. At least we can imagine that Marcus might have said something of this sort. Lucius had heard these and other remedies for overindulgence many times. He enjoyed the advantages of wealth and status too much to practice temperance for long, though when his Stoic brother was not there to supervise. Marcus understood human nature and had a wealth of psychological advice to share, but he recognised that Lucius was not interested. Chapter 11 Parthicus Maximus Marcus Aurelius listened in silence. Aestatius Priscus described the tactics required to wage war against the Parthians. Priscus was a decorated veteran of Hadrian's brutal war in Judea following the Bar Kokhba revolt. He had since been trusted with one senior military post after another. The emperor, like Antoninus before him, was known for having the humility to give experts their due. I should no more be ashamed to receive assistance, he wrote, than a wounded soldier being helped up by his comrades in order to storm the battlements of a fortress." Marcus intended to avoid repeating Severianus' mistakes, which had cost an entire legion in Armenia. Chapter 12. The Antonine Plague Every educated Roman knew how the Iliad, Homer's epic about the Trojan War, began. As punishment for dishonouring one of his priests, Apollo exacted terrible revenge upon the Greek armies. He came down furious from the summits of Olympus, with his bow and his quiver upon his shoulder, and the arrows rattled on his back with the rage that trembled within him. He sat himself down away from the ships with a face as dark as night, and his silver bow rang death as he shot his arrows in the midst of them. One soldier after another falls victim to a mysterious disease until bodies are burning all day long and pyres the length of the beach. Apollo, the god of healing, was also... The God of Plague. Chapter 13. The War of Many Nations. During the initial outbreaks of what would become a devastating plague, Marcus Aurelius turned his attention to another conflict already brewing along the Empire's northern frontier. Stifling a sigh, he patiently opened a letter from Alexander of Abonotichus, priest of Glycon. In arcane language, the oracle pronounced that victory would be secured against the Marcomanni and Quadi, two prominent Germanic tribes, and peace restored only if the emperor sacrificed two lions, throwing them into the Danube, along with sacred Indian herbs and flowers. Chapter 14. Germanicus Trajan's forum was crowded with visitors, who had come to see Rome's elite display their support for the war effort and find a bargain at the same time. Marcus Aurelius had ordered a public auction of imperial treasures, including palace furnishings, goblets of gold and precious crystal, and statues and paintings by famous artists. A huge stash of jewels, conveniently discovered in a holy cabinet, formerly owned by Hadrian, was also being auctioned. The Empress Faustina had even been persuaded to donate a collection of silken, gold-embroidered dresses. Marcus pledged that once victory had been achieved, the state would offer to buy back any purchases for the price paid, not unlike modern war bonds. Chapter 15. Sarmaticus Marcus looked out across the frozen surface of the River Danube, flanked by his two most senior generals, Pompeianus and Pertinax. The emperor tensed his grip on the reins of his horse as he watched a cohort of legionaries pursue a Sarmatian war party Onto the ice. The Romans had learned to wait until enemy horsemen were returning from raids before attacking. With this many slaves and this much loot, Pompeianus explained, they're as slow as infantry. Marcus knew as much already. They're most vulnerable while recrossing the river, grunted Pertinax, and our legionaries will be able to close in and surround them. Chapter 16 Cassius the Usurper The capital of the Roman province of Egypt was an ancient Hellenistic city founded in the 4th century BCE by Alexander the Great, after whom it was named Alexandria. It was also his resting place, and his tomb there remained one of the most venerated shrines in the ancient world. Alexandria's citizens, the wealthy ruling elite, considered themselves ethnically distinct from the rural tribes who occupied the surrounding area. In order to understand the civil war that Marcus Aurelius faced, we must go back in time about three years to an uprising instigated by a charismatic warrior priest renowned for his bravery named Isidorus. Isidorus led a tribe of nomads known as the Bukoloi or herdsmen, who inhabited the marshlands of the Nile Delta region. They were probably struggling to maintain their livelihood owing to the economic impact of the plague, increased taxation and prolonged wars on the northern frontier. Whatever their frustrations were, these grew unchecked until they finally erupted in one of the most violent uprisings of Marcus's rule. Chapter 17. The Civil War Marcus Aurelius must have raised an eyebrow as he struggled to understand his new enemy's military strategy – Cassius' rebellion has spread through the entire region south of the Taurus Mountains, he read aloud from the letter sent by his general, Marcius Verus. From Egypt, through Syria and Cilicia, to the Cappadocian border, all the provinces in this region came under the extraordinary command that Marcus had formally granted to Cassius. Cassius now had gone one step further and claimed these provinces as his empire, ''It doesn't make sense,'' Marcus said quietly. ''That gives him control of seven legions at most.'' Pompeianus nodded. Three in Syria, two in Syria-Palestina, one in Arabia, and one in Egypt.'' ''These legions were by no means the empire's finest. Three times as many remained loyal, including the hardened veterans of the Danube frontier.'' ''Against such odds?'' wondered Marcus.'' How could Cassius ever hope to win? Chapter 18. The Setting Sun Shortly after the civil war ended, Marcus Aurelius suffered another great loss. While travelling through Cappadocia, near a village called Halala, the Empress Faustina suddenly fell ill and died. They had been approaching a pass in the Taurus Mountains, known as the Cilician Gates, on their way into the region formerly controlled by the rebels. The sources are undecided as to whether she killed herself or died of a chronic disease. If rumours were true, the Empress may have feared documents would be uncovered implicating her in Cassius's conspiracy. Death at the age of 45 was not unusual, though, for a Roman woman. Faustina had given birth to at least 14 children, suffered from excruciating gout and was enduring a long journey through harsh foreign terrain when she died. Epilogue The Hall of Mysteries While the First Marcomannic War was raging, Marcus Aurelius, surrounded by death and betrayal, found consolation in writing his famous notes to himself on Stoic philosophy. He also made a solemn vow. If he survived long enough, he would go on pilgrimage to Athens and join the supplicants being initiated in the temple of Demeter at nearby Eleusis. Hadrian had tried to bring the Eleusinian mysteries to Rome, but their mystique was rooted in the Greek temple's ancient site. So that concludes the excerpts that I'm reading. I hope it gives you a flavour of the book. Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic Emperor... It's part of Yale University Press's Ancient Lifes series. And you can order it now from Amazon and all other good booksellers online. So please take a look at it. If you're so inclined, post a review or let me know what you think of it. So thank you very much for listening and goodbye.